Chapters 1 to 2 of Book 6 of Toilers of the Sea, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part 1, Sieur Clubin, by Victor Hugo, translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book 6. The Drunken Steersman and the Sober Captain. Chapter 1. The Douvre. At about five leagues out, in the open sea, to the south of Guernsey, opposite Plainmont Point, and between the Channel Islands and St. Malo, there is a group of rocks called the Douvre. The spot is dangerous. This term Douvre, applied to rocks and cliffs, is very common. There is, for example, near the Côte du Nord, a Douvre, on which a lighthouse is now being constructed, a dangerous reef but one which must not be confounded with the rock above referred to the nearest point on the french coast to the douvre is cap breha the douvre are a little further from the coast of france than from the nearest of the channel islands the distance from jersey may be pretty nearly measured by the extreme length of jersey if the island of jersey could be turned round upon corbiere as upon a hinge st catherine's point would almost touch the douvre at a distance of more than four leagues in these civilized regions the wildest rocks are rarely desert places smugglers are met with at argo customs-house men at Binnick, Celts at Brayhat, oyster-dredgers at Cancal, rabbit-shooters at Sambre or Caesar's Island, crab-gatherers at Breckhu, trawlers at the Manquier, dredgers at Ecrehu, but no one is ever seen upon the Douvres. The seabirds alone make their home there no spot in the ocean is more dreaded the casquet where it is said the blanche nef was lost the bank of calvados the needles in the isle of wight the ronesse which makes the coast of bewley so dangerous the sunken reefs at prale which block the entrance to merkel and which necessitates the red-painted beacon in twenty fathoms of water the treacherous approaches to etable and Pluha, the two granite druids to the south of Guernsey, the old Andalo and the little Andalo, the Corbiere and the Hanways, the Isle of Ra, associated with terror in the proverb, Si jamais tu passes le Ra, si tu ne meurs tu trembleras the mortfemme the day route between guernsey and jersey the hardon between the manquier and the chaussee the mauvais cheval between bouley bay and barnville have not so evil a reputation it would be preferable to have to encounter all these dangers one after the other than the douvres once in all that perilous sea of the channel which is the aegean of the west the douvre have no equal in their terrors except the paternoster between guernsey and sark from the paternoster however it is possible to give a signal a ship in distress there may obtain succour to the north rises decar or decare point and to the south grone from the douvre you can see nothing 
its associations are the storm the cloud the wild sea the desolate waste the uninhabited coast the blocks of granite are hideous and enormous everywhere perpendicular wall the severe inhospitality of the abyss it is in the open sea the water about is very deep a rock completely isolated like the douvre attracts and shelters creatures which shun the haunts of men it is a sort of vast submarine cave of fossil coral branches a drowned labyrinth there at a depth to which divers would find it difficult to descend are caverns haunts and dusky mazes where monstrous creatures multiply and destroy each other huge crabs devour fish and are devoured in their turn hideous shapes of living things not created to be seen by human eyes wander in this twilight vague forms of antennae tentacles fins open jaws scales and claws float about there quivering growing larger or decomposing and perishing in the gloom while horrible swarms of swimming things prowl about seeking their prey to gaze into the depths of the sea is in the imagination like beholding the vast unknown and from its most terrible point of view the submarine gulf is analogous to the realm of night and dreams there also is sleep unconsciousness or at least apparent unconsciousness of creation there in the awful silence and darkness the rude first forms of life phantom-like demoniacal pursue their horrible instincts forty years ago two rocks of singular form signalled the douvre from afar to passers on the ocean they were two vertical points sharp and curved their summits almost touching each other they looked like the two tusks of an elephant rising out of the sea but they were tusks high as tall towers of an elephant huge as a mountain these two natural towers rising out of the obscure home of marine monsters only left a narrow passage between them where the waves rushed through this passage tortuous and full of angles resembled a straggling street between high walls the two twin rocks are called the douvre there was the great douvre and the little douvre one was sixty feet high the other forty the ebb and flow of the tide had at last worn away part of the base of the towers and a violent equinoctial gale on the twenty sixth of october eighteen fifty nine overthrew one of them the smaller one which still remains is worn and tottering one of the most singular of the douvres is a rock known as the man this still exists some fishermen in the last century visiting this spot found on the height of the rock a human body by its side were a number of empty sea-shells a sailor escaped from shipwreck had found a refuge there had lived some time upon rock limpets and had died hence its name of the man the solitudes of the sea are peculiarly dismal the things which pass there seem to have no relation to the human race their objects are unknown such is the isolation of the douvre all around as far as i can reach spreads the vast and restless sea
Chapter Two: An Unexpected Flask of Brandy. On the Friday morning, the day after the departure of the Tamaulipas, the Durande started again for Guernsey. She left St. Malo at nine o'clock. The weather was fine, no haze. Old Captain Gertrude Gabarro was evidently in his dotage. Sieur Clubin's numerous occupations had decidedly been unfavourable to the collection of freight for the Durande. He had only taken aboard some packages of Parisian articles for the fancy shops of St. Peter's Port, three cases for the Guernsey Hospital, one containing yellow soap and long candles, and the other French shoe-leather for soles, and choice cordovan skins. He brought back from his last cargo a case of crushed sugar and three chests of congou tea, which the French custom-house would not permit to pass. He had embarked very few cattle, some bullocks only. These bullocks were in the hold, loosely tethered. There were six passengers aboard, a Guernsey man, two inhabitants of San Malo, dealers in cattle, a tourist, a phrase already in vogue at this period, a Parisian citizen, probably travelling on commercial affairs, and an American engaged in distributing Bibles. Without reckoning Clubin, the crew of the Durande amounted to seven men, a helmsman, a stoker, a ship's carpenter, and a cook, serving as sailors in case of need, two engineers, and a cabin boy. One of the two engineers was also a practical mechanic. This man, a bold and intelligent Dutch negro, who had originally escaped from the sugar plantations of Suriname, was named Imbrancam. The negro, Imbrancam, understood and attended admirably to the engine. In the early days of the devil-boat, his black face, appearing now and then at the top of the engine-room stairs, had contributed not a little to sustain its diabolical reputation. The helmsman, a native of Guernsey, but of a family originally from Cotentin, bore the name of Tongruil. The Tongruils were an old noble family. This was strictly true. The Channel Islands are like England, an aristocratic region. Castes exist in there still. The castes have their peculiar ideas, which are, in fact, their protection. These notions of caste are everywhere similar. In Hindustan, as in Germany, nobility is won by the sword, lost by soiling the hands with labour, but preserved by idleness. To do nothing is to live nobly. Whoever abstains from work is honoured. A trade is fatal. In France, in old times, there was no exception to this rule, except in the case of glass manufacturers. Emptying bottles being then one of the glories of gentlemen, making them was probably, for that reason, not considered dishonourable. In the Channel Archipelago, as in Great Britain, he who would remain noble must contrive to be rich. A working man cannot possibly be a gentleman. If he has ever been one, he is so no longer. Yonder sailor, perhaps, descends from the knight's banneret, but is nothing but a sailor. Thirty years ago, a real gorge who would have had rights over the seigniory of Gorge, confiscated by Philip Augustus, gathered seaweed, naked-footed, in the sea. A carteret is a wagoner in Sark. There are at Jersey a draper, and at Guernsey a shoemaker, named Grouchy, 
who claimed to be Grouches and cousins of the Marshal of Waterloo. The old registers of the bishopric of Coutances make mention of a seigneury of Tangreville, evidently from Tonkinville on the Lower Seine, which is identical with Montmercy. In the fifteenth century, Johann de Héroudeville, archer and étoffe of the sire de Tangreville, bore behind him son corset et ses autres arnois. In May 1371, at Pontourson, at the review of Bertrand du Guesclin, Monsieur de Tangreville rendered his homage as knight bachelor. In the Norman islands, if a noble falls into poverty, he is soon eliminated from the order. A mere change of pronunciation is enough. Tangreville becomes Tangrouille, and the thing is done. This has been the fate of the helmsman of the Durande. At the Bordage of St. Peter's Port, there is a dealer in old iron named Angrouille, who is probably an Angreville. Under Louis Le Gros, the Angrevilles possessed three parishes in the district of Valogne. A certain Abbe Trigon has written an ecclesiastical history of Normandy. This chronicler Trigon was the curé of the Signory of Digaville. The sire of Digaville, if he had sunk to a lower grade, would have been called Digouille. Tongruil, this probably Tongcarville, and possibly Montmorency, had an ancient noble quality, but a grave failing for a steersman. He got drunk occasionally. Sieur Clubin had obstinately determined to retain him. He answered for his conduct to Mess Lethierry. Tongrouille, the helmsman, never left the vessel. He slept aboard. On the eve of their departure, when Sieur Clubin came at a late hour to inspect the vessel, the steersman was in his hammock asleep. In the night, Tongrouille awoke. It was his nightly habit. Every drunkard who is not his own master has his secret hiding-place. Tongruil had his, which he called his store. The secret store of Tongruil was in the hold. He had placed it there to put others off the scent. He thought it certain that his hiding-place was known only to himself. Captain Clubin, being a sober man himself, was strict. The little rum or gin which the helmsman could conceal from the vigilant eyes of the captain he kept in reserve in this mysterious corner of the hold, and nearly every night he had a stolen interview with the contents of this store. The surveillance was rigorous, the orgy was a poor one, and Tongruil's nightly excesses were generally confined to two or three furtive draughts. Sometimes it happened that the store was empty. This night, Tongruil had found there an unexpected bottle of brandy. His joy was great, but his astonishment greater. From what cloud had it fallen? He could not remember when or how he had ever brought it into the ship. He soon, however, consumed the whole of it, partly from motives of prudence and partly from a fear that the brandy might be discovered and seized. The bottle he threw overboard. In the morning, when he took the helm, Tongruil exhibited a slight oscillation of the body. He steered, however, pretty nearly as usual. With regard to Clubin, he had gone, as the reader knows, to sleep at the Jean Auberge. Clubin always wore under his shirt a leathern travelling belt, in which he kept a reserve of twenty guineas. He took this belt off only at night. 
Inside the belt was his name, Clubin, written by himself on the rough leather, with thick lithographer's ink, which is indelible. On rising, just before his departure, he put into this girdle the iron box containing the seventy-five thousand francs in banknotes. Then, as he was accustomed to do, he buckled the belt round his body. End of chapter two of book six. Recording by Paul Adams. www.yawnguy.com.